the last few months he had bought new clothes, he'd bought new boots, you know, he was like a different guy. You know, when you probably put two and two together, he may have actually been sort of courting someone uh, and trying to spruce himself up a wee bit. That's the voice of Terence Wilson giving evidence in a courtroom in Christchurch in February 2023. He's talking about one of his mates, a guy named Michael McGrath, who, Terence Wilson said, was usually, famously, a scruffy dresser. He had a Canterbury T-shirt, which I think he wore for probably 15 years, and it was falling to bits, and I happened to have the same T-shirt. I took mine round and offered him one that was basically brand new that was the same age, and said, yeah, do you want this? He said, no, I like my one. So that's what Michael was like, yeah. Wilson had known Michael McGrath and Michael's brother Simon for decades. They all went to high school together in the early 1980s. And as adults, they were part of a group of guys that for years met up most Saturday nights at Craythorne's pub in Hallswell in the southwest of Christchurch. When it started, they were all aged in their 20s and 30s. Now, they were all pushing 50. And it was at this pub in early 2017 that Wilson and the others noticed that scruffy dresser Michael McGrath was suddenly looking not quite so scruffy. And also, there were times when he didn't even show up at the pub. That was out of character too. Simon suggested he may be seeing someone given his um, out of character absences from the pub. He says, I wonder if he's got someone um, inside. So he said, keep an eye out for a car outside his place. And I just kept an eye out for him. And I said, oh, you just look like there was Nissan Wing Road or something like that outside there. I've noticed it a bit. It sounds innocuous. Two guys talking about whether their mate has a new girlfriend he's not telling them about. No big deal. But this is a big deal, actually. Because it turned out, yes, Terence Wilson's mate, Michael McGrath, had been seeing someone new. A woman named Joanna Green. And Joanna? Well, she'd recently broken up with her long-term partner and father of her kids, a guy called David Benbow. And to complete the triangle, David Benbow and Michael McGrath were friends and had been since high school. And the reason we're even hearing Terence talk about these interrelationships between three seemingly ordinary people living in the Christchurch suburbs? Because he's saying it on the record, in the witness box, at a murder trial. The alleged murder victim is Michael McGrath. The alleged murderer, David Benbow. And what makes this case extraordinary is that, to this day, neither Michael McGrath's body nor the alleged murder weapon have ever been found. From Stuff, this is The Trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared, almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. In early 2023, Benbow pleaded not guilty and stood trial. For nearly two months, reporters from the press newsroom in Christchurch were at court every day. 
In this podcast, we'll take you into that trial in courtroom 12 on the third floor of Christchurch's new justice precinct. You'll hear evidence directly from witnesses. You'll hear the cases for the prosecution and for the defence. In such a long trial, we can't cover every single thing that happened. A lot of evidence is repetitive, people supporting what each other say. Sometimes it's about establishing uncontroversial things like bank transactions or police procedure. Some evidence is suppressed. But over this series, you'll hear in detail all of the key evidence in this case. You'll hear from the witnesses and the lawyers directly, although some recordings have been edited slightly for time and clarity. We've made this podcast in real time. As I record this introduction, the trial isn't over, and I don't know the verdict. So we've followed the strict rules around court reporting. Like any defendant, David Benbow is innocent until proven guilty, and we're required to report both sides of this case, the prosecution and the defence, fairly and accurately. The trial of David Benbow started on Monday, February 13th, 2023. Please be seated. I could paint a picture of courtroom number 12 for you, but really, it looks like every court you've ever seen on the news. The judge is at the front, at an elevated bench under the New Zealand coat of arms. The lawyers in their black robes, no wigs these days, they're in the middle of the room, behind long tables. The jury and witness boxes are on the left as you face the judge, and on the right is the dock. At the back is the public gallery, segregated from the rest of the court by protective glass. For most of this trial, almost every seat is taken. David Benbow sits at a table just behind his lawyers. He's been free on bail for more than a year, but at the trial, he's under guard, a corrections officer sitting either side of him, effectively in custody. Wearing a suit with an open collar, he listens intently throughout the trial. During the trial, he developed a habit of thoroughly cleaning his reading glasses each morning. He has his own laptop to view evidence, and he often leans forward for a closer look, or sometimes scribbles a note and passes it to his lawyers. During breaks, he sometimes jokes with his guards. He used to be a corrections officer himself. Oh, good morning, members of the jury. I understand... Uh, On that first Monday, February 13th, the jury is selected and given some instructions by the judge. On the Tuesday, the prosecution gives its opening statement outlining all the evidence it says will prove that David Benbow is guilty of the murder of Michael McGrath. Planning the perfect murder. Then the defence responds, arguing that the Crown case is flawed and proves nothing. Numerous rhetorical questions that you're in no position to answer. Then the trial proper. Right, so we now move into the uh, evidence phase. Where the jury gets to hear the nitty-gritty details from more than 130 witnesses begins. And I understand the... Crown have their first witness ready to call uh, this afternoon. But before we get into the evidence, we need to take you out of the courtroom and back in time and tell you a bit more about Michael McGrath. Because while this podcast is about David Benbow and his trial, it's inescapably about McGrath as well. What you're about to hear is what happened before the alleged crime and mostly undisputed. Quite a bit of evidence in this trial is undisputed. 
which means both the defence and the prosecution accept that it's true. Michael McGrath was born in Christchurch in 1968. He spent most of his life in and around Hallswell, in the southwest of the city. He failed school certificate the first time, so he repeated the fifth form to get it. Then he left school to start work. For most of his life, he was a builder. First, that was for big construction firms, and later, it was for himself. Michael's brother, Simon McGrath, was asked to describe him at the trial. He was dependable, reliable, loyal. He, um, he would all often help out uh, friends on their building projects. He would help me out around my house. He um, enjoyed his sports. He liked the outdoors. We played touch rugby together in the same team in our 20s and 30s. He was quite predictable. If he said he'd be somewhere, he'd be there. An all-round genuine good guy. In his work, Michael McGrath was a perfectionist. While installing a new kitchen in his mother's house, he found that the new bench top was one millimetre longer than it was supposed to be. The bench fitted just fine, and most people would have been happy with the job. But Michael took it back outside, carefully shaved a single millimetre off of one end, and fitted it back in place. With Michael, everything had to be perfect. That commitment to detail extended into the rest of his life. He was, as his brother Simon said, famously reliable. If he said he'd be somewhere, he was. On time. Whenever he went to the supermarket, he liked to park in the same spot. And at the pub, he always paid in cash and liked to drink two handles of beer, but not three. That would mean breaking a second $20 note. And Michael didn't like to break a second 20. That was another thing about Michael McGrath. He was frugal to the point of eccentric. He had hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings, but he wouldn't buy a new car battery for his old 1994 Subaru station wagon. He owned a cell phone, but it wasn't even connected to a network. He only used it to listen to the radio. He didn't trust banks and hid some of his money in the walls and under the carpet in his house. And he could easily afford new clothes, but up until a few months before he disappeared, when his friends noticed he was getting a little bit less scruffy, McGrath mostly favoured old jeans and T-shirts with holes in them. The last time anyone says they saw Michael McGrath was on Sunday, May 21st, 2017. That afternoon, a friend dropped in to pay McGrath for some building work. They chatted for a few minutes, and the friend noticed that McGrath was dressed smartly in a grey V-neck pullover instead of his usual old T-shirt. David Benbow also called at McGrath's place that day. The pair had long been friends. They went to school together. But it's safe to say that by this time, their friendship was a bit more complicated. That was because for the last couple of months, McGrath had been dating Benbow's former partner, Joanna Green. And the split between David Benbow and Joanna Green was still pretty fresh. It had happened just a few weeks before Green and McGrath got together. Now, the circumstances of Green and Benbow's split and the finer details of the new relationship between Green and McGrath 
and how all three of them felt about those things is heavily disputed, and we'll get into that later. But it's largely agreed that when Benbow called on McGrath that afternoon, the pair hadn't seen much of each other for a few months. Benbow told McGrath that day that he needed his help to move some railway sleepers, those big, heavy wooden posts that lie underneath train tracks that were on his lawn. McGrath said he would, and the pair agreed he would be at Benbow's house at nine the next morning. That night, McGrath had fish and chips for dinner and answered a couple of calls from Joanna Green on his landline, where he told her about helping Benbow the next day. Those calls would be the last time anyone could confirm Michael McGrath being alive. The next morning, well, David Benbow says McGrath never showed up at his house to move those sleepers. That day, Monday, May the 22nd, no one else is known to have seen or spoken to Michael McGrath. Joanna Green called McGrath at home repeatedly, but got no answer. She went round to his house that afternoon to check on him. The house was locked, but she could hear the radio playing, and McGrath didn't seem to be at home. She started to worry. Then the next day, Tuesday, May the 23rd, McGrath missed another appointment. He didn't show up for dinner at his mum's place. He hardly ever missed Tuesday night dinner at his mum's. Here's his brother, Simon McGrath, again. Mum always cooked dinner and made some home baking for us to take away. And I I suppose it was just a good opportunity for us to get together with mum every Tuesday. I mean, I do remember maybe once or twice Michael saying he couldn't come, but he used to ring mum if he couldn't bake it. That Tuesday, Simon McGrath arrived at his mum's house at the usual time, just after 6.30. I went inside and I asked mum, where's Michael? And... uh, she said she didn't know. So we began to sit down 10 minutes later and, and have our meals and, and the phone rang. So I heard mum on the phone and then when she hung up, I'd asked her um, who was on the phone and she said it was uh, Joe. Joe is Joanna Green. And uh, she said she think something's happened to Michael. She um, said that Joe was coming around in about an hour's time and we were gonna go around to Michael's house and see if he was home. So about eight o'clock, Joanna Green picked up Simon McGrath and they drove round to Michael's house on Checkett's Ave in Hallswood. Yeah, I was driving round to Michael's with Simon. This is Green in court being questioned by prosecutor Claire Bosher. We're required by a court order to distort Green's voice. Simon told us he pulled out the louvers in the toilet window and climbed in. Yes, he did. Simon then let you inside the house? Yes, he did, yep. yep. When you got inside, what did you do? We had a look around the house, but he wasn't, he was nowhere. 7.51pm, there's a phone call from the Check It Safe landline to 111. Yep, I was that concerned, I had to, I had to bring them, yep. yep. Standing in the home of her new partner, Michael McGrath, Joanna Green called 111 to report him missing. A recording of this call was played to the court. It's hard to hear on the speaker system, but listen closely. His brother and I broke into his house. He's not here, and it's very unusual. Now, what Green says next is important, 
and will be a major bone of contention in this case. I've rung my previous partner whose behaviour's been unusual for um, a few days. Joanna Green is talking to the operator about David Benbow, her previous partner, and she's suggesting that Benbow might have something to do with the disappearance of Michael McGrath, her new partner. I've rung him, she means Benbow here, and given him the chance to tell me if he's done anything before I ring you. We'll get into what else happened that Monday night later, but briefly, Green did indeed call Benbow before she called 111, and she asked him if he knew anything about McGrath's disappearance. Benbow told her he didn't. And, as you're about to hear, Green clearly didn't believe him. My inkling is that he has hurt Mike. Do you think that David might have hurt him? I do. I do. Starting with the 111 call, David Benbow's name was being linked to his disappearance. But more than two years would pass before Benbow would be charged with McGrath's murder. It took that long for police to build their case for how they believed he killed McGrath and covered his tracks. During those two years, they waded through a rubbish dump, they tracked cars, they bugged phones, they issued a fake press release. They trawled rivers, ponds and waterways looking for a body. And it took another four years after that for the case to get to trial. All that time, six years in all, David Benbow never once wavered in his insistence that he was innocent and had nothing to hide. We'll get to the defence case in this trial soon, but first, now that we've told you the basics about the disappearance of Michael McGrath, we now need to tell you what the prosecution says happened to him. So this is the Crown's theory about how Michael McGrath died and where, who killed him and why they did it, and how the killer managed to do all of this while leaving barely a trace of any crime at all. Remember, David Benbow pleaded not guilty, and it is entirely the responsibility of the Crown to convince the jury that the murder theory you're about to hear is what really happened. In court, the Crown lays out the overview of this theory, and the evidence it says supports it in its opening argument. So, on day two of the trial, Tuesday, February 14th, this job fell to Claire Bosher, one of the two Crown prosecutors working on this case. You'll hear from her and the other prosecutor throughout this podcast. All right, Ms. Bosher, thank you. That's the judge, by the way, Justice Jonathan Eaton, until 2021, one of the most prominent defence lawyers in Christchurch. May it please Your Honour and members of the jury. On that Tuesday morning, at Justice Eaton's invitation, Claire Bosher rose and faced the jury box. An opening statement is one of the few times in a trial a lawyer speaks directly to a jury. The Crown case is that Mr Benbow murdered Mr McGrath at his property, Candice Road, on the morning of Monday the 22nd of May 2017. Bosher's opening was extremely detailed and took almost an entire day. We're not going to make you listen to all of it, 
So here, in summary, is how the prosecution says David Benbow killed Michael McGrath and covered his tracks. David Benbow was upset that Michael McGrath had started seeing his ex, Joanna Green. Green had left the family home in March 2017 and taken the couple's two daughters with her. McGrath and Green had always been close. He even helped her move out that day, and the pair started a relationship a few weeks later. Benbow suspected something was going on between his ex and his friend, and he had those suspicions confirmed by one of his daughters, who one day in late April told him that she had seen Mummy and Mike kissing. Benbow was devastated. He told the counsellor who he'd been seeing after his breakup with Green that he wanted to, quote, annihilate McGrath. And so, the Crown argues, Benbow, enraged, resolved to kill his former friend. The counsellor's name is suppressed, so that's the bleep you're about to hear. Mr Benbow's anger became focused on Mr McGrath. Mr Michael McGrath could end up with everything Mr Benbow had lost. Mr Benbow betrayed his real feelings, the Crown says, when he told he would like to annihilate Mike. The Crown says he then made a plan to do just that. Annihilate, wipe from the face of the earth. First, Benbow had to make it appear like he and McGrath were regular buddies again. Between the breakup and the new relationship, that hardly seen each other for months. So on May 17th, 2017, five days before McGrath disappeared, Benbow turned up unannounced at his old friend's home, saying his car had broken down and that he needed a lift. This was a lie, the Crown says, to re-establish contact with McGrath and perhaps even give Benbow plausible deniability later if his DNA was found in McGrath's vehicle. In any case, McGrath gave Benbow a ride home and even helped move some items on Benbow's lawn, a rabbit hutch and an old cast iron bar. Then, as we've heard, on Sunday, May 21st, Benbow called at McGrath's place again. He said he needed help moving something else in his yard, some old railway sleepers this time. They organised for McGrath to be at Benbow's at 9am the next day. It was here, the Crown says, at his own home on a frosty Christchurch morning, that David Benbow shot and killed Michael McGrath using his .22 rifle. Exactly how and where on the property this happened, the Crown isn't sure, but the weapon was a small calibre and Benbow owned a suppressor for it. So there was likely not much noise and not much blood to clean up afterwards. Benbow had an appointment with a counsellor at 10 o'clock that morning. That's the counsellor he'd been seeing since his breakup with Green. The Crown says, having killed McGrath, Benbow kept his appointment and disposed of the body that afternoon. Just before 3.30pm, Benbow's silver Toyota Camry was captured on CCTV at a service station in Taitapu, a village just south of Christchurch. Benbow bought something from the service station, paying cash, and his Camry was seen again on CCTV, leaving the service station and heading south. If you know Christchurch at all, this road, State Highway 75, runs from the city to Akaroa on Banks Peninsula. 
the Crown theory doesn't extend to exactly where Benbow disposed of McGrath's body, but it argues that the area just south of Taitapu, somewhere near the north shore of Lake Ellesmere, is a distinct possibility. The CCTV cameras in Taitapu don't capture Benbow's Camry returning to Christchurch, so the Crown says he may have gone home after dark or by a different route. Once Benbow was home, the Crown says, all he had to do was clean up. Firstly, that meant returning Michael McGrath's car, a dark blue Subaru station wagon, back to his home on Checkett's Ave, about a five minute drive from Benbow's place. Here, the Crown says, Benbow struck trouble because Michael McGrath's car had a dodgy battery and wouldn't start. So that night, Benbow called two friends hoping to borrow their jumper cables. Neither of them answered, and later that evening, around 9pm, Benbow turned up on one of their doorsteps, asking for jumper cables. Benbow lied to this friend, the Crown says, and said they were for his mother's car. His friend gave him a jump pack, and Benbow went home and used it to start McGrath's Subaru. Then he drove the car back to Checkett's Ave, where he parked it in the driveway. Finally, the next day, Tuesday, May 23rd, Benbow went to the dump. It's not known what exactly he threw away here, but it wasn't much because the fee he was charged for was the minimum possible weight, so less than 20 kilograms. The Crown says the rubbish Benbow took to the dump may have included Michael McGrath's clothes and keys, and possibly Benbow's own rifle and suppressor which he couldn't account for after McGrath's disappearance, and which have never been found. With that, says the Crown, David Benbow had successfully killed Michael McGrath and concealed the crime as best he could. That night, McGrath would fail to turn up at his mother's house for their regular Tuesday dinner, and everyone would realise he was missing. Thank you for your attention today. May it please, Your Honour. That's the Crown theory. After Bosha was finished, came the reply from the defence. Mr Corlett, do you wish to make an opening statement on behalf of the defence? David Benbow was represented by four lawyers, twice as many as the prosecution has, which is unusual. His lead counsel, which is legal speak for main lawyer, was Mark Corlett, KC, a prominent Auckland barrister. Corlett is best known for civil and commercial cases, particularly fraud. He only joined the defence team after Benbow's initial lawyer died, which was one of the reasons the case took so long to come to trial. Members of the jury, you've heard a long opening from the Crown, full of excruciating detail that no doubt you will have felt quite lost. Corlett's full opening argument would come later in the trial, when the defence presented its case. Here, in rebuttal, he focused on a couple of key points. The first was that detectives working the case were, he argued, guilty of investigative bias. Remember Joanna Green's 111 call we played earlier? My inkling is that he has hurt Mike. Corlett told the jury that police had decided on day one that David Benbow was their man because Joanna Green told them he was. So followed a homicide investigation that was hopelessly flawed. 
on Ms Green's say-so, the police decided that Mr Benbow must have been responsible. And teams of police, as you will hear, spent thousands upon thousands of hours trying to find any evidence they could to fit their theory. To find evidence to fit their theory. This led to another problem with bias, Corlett said. Just like the tunnel vision detectives suffered from in focusing solely on David Benbow, the evidence they gathered against him didn't prove anything. It might seem suspicious, but only if you chose to look at it that way. Corlett had a name for it. Subtle evidence. Subtle evidence like CCTV footage that the Crown argued appeared to be Michael McGrath driving to David Benbow's house the morning McGrath died. They've started with that theory, and then they've looked at lots and <coughs> lots of CCTV to see whether they can find anything consistent with that. Let's see if we can find a blue car. Ah, that must be Mr McGrath. So they've started with a conclusion that Mr McGrath went round there before nine, and they then looked for CCTV. That's confirmation bias. The prosecution, for its part, acknowledged that its case against David Benbow was entirely circumstantial. You've probably heard that phrase before, but it's worth explaining exactly what it means, because this trial hinges on it. Circumstantial evidence is evidence that doesn't directly prove a fact. It requires some inference to reach a conclusion. Like what you just heard. Here's CCTV footage of a car very much like Michael McGrath's in the right time and place on that fateful Monday morning. It doesn't prove that McGrath went to Benbow's house that day, but it supports the Crown theory that that's what happened. Prosecutor Claire Bosher had addressed exactly this point in her opening, arguing that while some things were missing, this didn't prevent the Crown from presenting a compelling case. There's no forensic evidence such as Mr McGrath's blood at Mr Benbow's house. There's no DNA evidence on a weapon, for example. The Crown case is built of many different strands of evidence taken individually. Each fact might not prove much at all, but when you put them all together, you find a series of otherwise inexplicable coincidences that as a matter of common sense and logic, point to only one conclusion which you can arrive at, namely that Mr. Benbow murdered Mr. McGrath. Bosha just mentioned a couple of examples of direct evidence the Crown didn't have. McGrath's blood at Benbow's house, DNA on a weapon. But that's not all. The alleged murder weapon in this case, David Benbow's .22 rifle, has never been found. There's also no established crime scene. Investigators concluded from other evidence that McGrath died somewhere on Benbow's property. And crucially, the police, for all their searching, never found Michael McGrath's body. It's on these disputed points, and the others you've heard in this episode, that this trial was contested. It's a long trial. Seven weeks, more than 130 witnesses, hundreds of hours of testimony. 
Over the coming episodes, you'll hear detailed evidence from both sides of this case. From the prosecution, arguing that the circumstantial evidence is more than enough to convict David Benbow of the murder of Michael McGrath, and the defence, arguing that it isn't. Next on the trial, one relationship falters, another flourishes, and an awful alleged crime is the result. When he told you that he'd fancied you for years, how did you feel? I knew that we both, I'll use the word fancy, but he was a good looking man and he was very kind. And we just, we got on so well. Um, just wish he was still here. <laughs> You've been listening to The Trial, a stuff podcast. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from The Press newspaper. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. Thanks to Carmela Heyman and Martin Van Banen. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and leave a review. It helps other people find it. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz slash podcasts. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White Silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence.